High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in this seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org students. That's lls.org slash students. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. You must a kiss is just a kiss, a Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secret and or forgotten stories of Hollywood's first century. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode of our ongoing series, Fake News, Fact-Checking Hollywood Babylon. This isn't news. This is totally unfounded gossip. It's a long way from Hollywood. Criticized for dealing too frankly with such themes as sex and nudity. Hollywood. Babylon. In the first half of this season, we had special celebrity guests reading from the pages of Hollywood Babylon. This season, we are looking to the post-celebrity future, in which all actors will be replaced by digital replicas, and all big-name podcast guests will be generated by artificial intelligence. So here, once again, is the anger bot reading an edited excerpt from Hollywood Babylon. Another lady luminary with a pronounced penchant for men, Mary Astor was one of the screen's great character actresses. Since girlhood, Mary's best friend had been her diary. She told it everything, and delighted in writing a sublime experience while the memories still glowed. The volume for 1935 covered her extramarital trysts, with witty playwright George S. Kaufman, with whom she found exquisite rapport. It is odd, she did not keep it well hidden. The diary had been kept in a bedroom drawer, with Mary's undies. One day, her physician husband was hunting a pair of misplaced cufflinks. When he opened Mary's diary, his glance fell on a passage of extravagant admiration. Remarkable staying power. I don't see how he does it. The admiration was not for Mary's husband. Mary recorded her first encounter with her paramour, in glowing terms. His first initial is G, and I fell like a ton of bricks. The doctor's eyes popped, as he read his wife's own record, of her sexual itinerary. Tuesday night we had a dinner at 21 before we saw a play, and he did kiss me. 
And I don't think either of us remember much what the show was about. We played Neezies during the first two acts. My hand was not in my own lap during the third. It's been years since I felt up a man in public, but I just got carried away. Afterwards we had a drink someplace and then went to our little flat in 73rd Street where we could be alone, and it was all very thrilling and beautiful. His powers of recuperation are amazing, and we made love all night long. It all worked perfectly, and we shared our fourth climax at dawn. When Mary's husband, Franklin Thorpe, sued for divorce in April 1935, and demanded the custody of their daughter Marilyn, Mary did not contest the divorce. Thorpe had appropriated her diary before she moved out of their Beverly Hills mansion. It was devastating evidence. Thorpe's lawyers revealed the existence of the diary the first day of the trial. The judge took a peek at the book and excluded it as evidence. But Thorpe's lawyers leaked excerpts to the press, which left little doubt as to its tenor. The tabloids gave the diary full coverage, long excerpts sprinkled with asterisks. The public had a ball, filling in the dots for itself. The court got an earful, when the nurse of Mary's daughter, related what Mary Lynn's father had been up to, in the mansion, after Mary moved out. The nurse described a scene at the mansion with starlet Norma Taylor, who got into a jealous sprawl with Mary's ex in front of the child. At the time, Norma had on red toenail polish, and nothing else. Nurse reported that not only Norma, but three other blonde Busby Berkeley showgirls, had slept in the doctor's bed on succeeding nights, and Thorpe's whereabouts, her deadpan reply was, he was right there, in his bed, too. Mary got back the mansion and Mary Lynn, in spite of all the diary revealed of her passion for Kaufman. However, the court did not return her dearest friend. The diary was determined to be pornography, and consigned to the courthouse stove. It is significant that these revelations did not injure Mary Astra's career, far from it. Ten years earlier, a case like this would have finished the career of any star, but the depression had been a factor, in promoting greater public maturity. In a few years, Mary would score one of her greatest successes, as the seductive villainous in the Maltese Falcon. Anger gets the bare bones of this scandal right, but he added many embellished details and got others just plain wrong. Today we will tell the story of how Mary Astor became the first actress whose career was arguably helped by a major sex scandal that got nationwide publicity. And we'll spot the many instances where Anger's version of Astor's experience drifted into fiction. Join us, won't you, for the story of Mary Astor's Diary. Mary Astor began acting when she was 14 and from the moment she signed her first contract with Paramount, she was her family's main breadwinner. It was one thing when her family was nearly starving and Mary's father Otto used her first $60 paycheck to buy the family steak, oranges, and phonograph records. It was another thing when, of a $4,000 paycheck, Otto would meet out to the daughter who earned the windfall just $5 allowance per week. By her late teens, Mary began looking to escape the total control her father had exerted over her at home. Her first serious romance came when she was 17, and it was with John Barrymore, Drew Barrymore's grandfather, who was then 40. Barrymore was considered to be the greatest actor in the world at the time. He played all the serious Shakespeare parts on the stage and then slummed it in the movies for the money. He hand-picked Mary as his co-star in the 1924 film Bo Brummel, 
Barrymore immediately fell in love with his teenage leading lady and convinced Mary's parents, who were so overprotective that they virtually kept her jailed in their eccentric mansion, that he needed to conduct private acting lessons with their daughter in a suite at the Beverly Hills Hotel. Barrymore did teach Mary about acting and books and art, while also teaching her about sex, for which he awakened a healthy appetite in Mary. Barrymore wasn't in it for a quick affair with a not-quite-legal beauty. He wanted to marry Mary and propose to her more than once. She was afraid to say yes. She was afraid to fully cut the ties that bound her to her father. When Barrymore went on a theatrical tour, she stayed in Hollywood to fulfill her contract, and Astor and Barrymore spent about a year and a half apart. This was not Barrymore's choice. He tried to get Mary to join him in a production of Richard III, but her father said they couldn't afford for her to breach her studio contract. They couldn't afford it because Daddy was spending her money as fast as it came in. The relationship with Barrymore ended, but Mary had reached a breaking point. She started socializing like the young person she was, and in 1926, the 21-year-old met and fell in love with Kenneth Hawks, brother of Howard Hawks, who was also a film director. The pair were married in 1928. They had a blissful courtship, but on the wedding night, Kenneth, to Mary's great disappointment, wasn't interested in consummating the marriage. Though in all other ways she thought her marriage was perfect, sexually she would remain unsatisfied. We often slept together in Ken's big double bed, she would say later. I loved him and loved the feeling of closeness, but it wasn't enough. She ended up having an affair with an executive at Fox, rationalizing that if she could get her sexual needs met, she could be happy with Kenneth. But she ended up getting pregnant, and after she had an abortion, she felt like she had to take a hard look at the problems in her marriage that had gotten her there. And then Kenneth suddenly died in a horrible accident while shooting an airplane stunt for his second movie. A devastated Mary sought refuge in work, and a tumultuous affair with the actor Lee Tracy, who was an alcoholic. When Mary began noticing red splotches on her skin, she went to see Tracy's doctor, Franklin Thorpe. After an examination, Thorpe diagnosed Astor with total physical exhaustion and the beginnings of tuberculosis. If the latter diagnosis had been made public, it could seriously endanger Mary's career. So Thorpe agreed to treat her privately. This episode is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there is always something new to discover. With Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected, so you can explore incredible movies, streaming anytime, anywhere. This month in U.S. theaters, Mubi is releasing a new documentary from Academy Award winner Kevin McDonald, High and Low, John Galliano. It's charting the rise and fall story of the fashion designer John Galliano who was one of the most successful names in couture until his career abruptly ended in 2011. Featuring conversations with Naomi Campbell, Kate Moss, Penelope Cruz, Charlize Theron, Anna Wintour, and more. High and Low, John Galliano is coming to select theaters across the U.S. on March 8th. For showtimes and tickets, visit Mubi.com slash high and low. And to stream the best of cinema, you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Thorpe at the time was in a relationship with a woman named Lillian Miles, 
a widow with a son, with whom Thorpe had cohabitated in Tampa, Florida, leading most who met them to believe they were married. They had moved to Los Angeles together, but were living separately when Thorpe met Mary. When Mary Astor declared her love for him, Franklin Thorpe decided to become a one-woman man. In 1931, they were married, and in 1932, Mary gave birth to their daughter, Mary Lynn. Within a few months of Mary Lynn's birth, Mary began to recognize real problems in her marriage. For one thing, she and Franklin Thorpe had virtually nothing in common. She craved a romantic life, like the one Barrymore had given her, in which sex and love were wrapped up in a passion for literature and theater and music and exciting artists and intellectuals. Mary was unhappy, but it looks like Thorpe actually broke the marriage vows first by returning to Lillian Miles. In late 1932, Mary asked her husband for a divorce. He refused to grant it. He equated divorce with failure and was determined to keep his family together, his extramarital relationship notwithstanding. Astor agreed to remain married for the sake of their daughter, but privately, she resolved to find satisfaction elsewhere. She began having affairs. None of these were serious until the spring of 1933, when she visited New York and met George S. Kaufman. In 1933, Kaufman was 45. He was considered one of the most successful writers in America, the author of wildly successful plays, sometimes in collaboration with Moss Hart, and he would soon be valued by Hollywood as a secret script doctor of major movies. He had a wife, Beatrice, but they had an open marriage. When he and Mary met, Kaufman was coming off the massive success of Dinner at Eight, a Broadway smash Kaufman co-authored with novelist Edna Ferber, which was in the process of being adapted into a major movie, featuring two of Mary's exes, Lee Tracy and John Barrymore. Mary fell fast and hard, and she hung her hopes of salvation on Kaufman, which was a mistake. Because once she had gone back to Los Angeles, he continued seeing many other women. At first, Mary hoped that she and her lover would leave their spouses for one another. But by early 1935, about 18 months into the affair, she had come to accept the fact that George didn't love her that way, and in fact, would never leave his wife because of the leeway Beatrice gave him to see multiple other women, Kaufman's marriage worked for him. Nothing about Mary's marriage was working for her, however. She again asked for a divorce, and again, Thorpe talked her out of it. But he was still seeing Miles. And in fact, when Miles became pregnant in late 1934, Thorpe had personally given her an abortion. Abortions were illegal and not spoken about publicly much at the time, but Mary did write about it in her diary. Then, she told Thorpe about her relationship with Kaufman, and Thorpe was very understanding. As she wrote in her diary, he said, It's a wonder you haven't turned to someone else long before because of the way I've treated you. I haven't kept my word to you. I've given you a raw deal. Then, in February 1935, she learned from Kaufman that her husband had gone to see him. Franklin Thorpe had pleaded with Kaufman, man to man. He begged Kaufman to leave Mary alone so that the doctor could try to salvage his domestic situation. Thorpe made it clear he would contest any divorce action his wife should file, 
and implied that he would name Kaufman as co-respondent. Kaufman told Thorpe he would end the affair. I'm sorry, he said, and I hope I won't be brought into your personal affairs. Then Kaufman went out to dinner with Astor, told her everything, and said he had no intention to follow through on the promise he had made to her husband. Mary decided that this was the last straw. She told Franklin Thorpe that she wanted a divorce, and this time there'd be no talking her out of it. Franklin countered that if she filed for divorce, he'd tell the world about her affair with Kaufman, which was the last thing the very discreet Kaufman wanted. Mary called bullshit on this immediately. I wanted to divorce you two years ago, before I even met him, she protested. Why would you want to drag in people who have nothing to do with our troubles? When tempers cooled, Thorpe and Astor worked out a tentative agreement to split up and share custody of their daughter. And then Thorpe found Mary's diary. Not in her underwear drawer, as anger would have it, but reportedly due to a tip from one of the servants that worked in the couple's mansion which was not in Beverly Hills, but 10 miles north in Toluca Lake. There were two diaries, actually. Two bound books recording her most intimate thoughts and actions of the past several years. The revelations within, which included Mary's rapid cooling of affection for Thorpe and details regarding her many affairs, enraged Thorpe. He now declared that he would grant his wife a divorce, but unless she agreed to give him full custody of their daughter, he would make the diary public. An extremely unbalanced custody agreement was worked out. Mary would pay for all costs associated with their daughter, but would only be allowed to live with her for six months of the year, and then only under Thorpe's supervision. Mary allowed Thorpe to keep the house they had shared in Toluca Lake, and she moved to Beverly Hills. Mary Lynn came with her, with the understanding that if Mary did anything to violate Thorpe's idea of fit mothering, he would take the child permanently. A year passed, And during that time, Mary Astor and George Kaufman's relationship ran its course. The newly single Astor was devoted to two things, her daughter and her career. Over the past year, she had worked constantly, in part because even after a decade in the business, she had not yet become a big enough star to be able to be choosy or to dictate her schedule. Her star status circa early 1936 was typified by a C-grade film she appeared in that season called Trapped by Television, a painfully cheap production which calls to mind the work of Ed Wood, and not just because it also starred future Wood player Lyle Talbot. Mary and Franklin fought frequently about how to raise Mary Lynn, with the ex-husband sometimes violently critical of the ex-wife's mothering, the servants she employed, and the four-year-old herself. It all came to a head on July 5, 1936. Thorpe took Mary Lynn out for the day on a scheduled visit that was supposed to end before dinner. Then Thorpe called Mary and said he wouldn't bring the four-year-old home until after dinner. In fact, he brought the child home an hour past her usual bedtime. Astor was livid and began consulting with a lawyer named Roland Rich Woolley about fighting to reverse the previous custody agreement. A week later, Woolley filed a suit accusing Thorpe of having coerced Astor into accepting the current custody situation 
through illegal means, by threatening to destroy her career with revelations about her personal life if she didn't. Thorpe counterclaimed that Astor was an immoral person, unfit to raise a child, and that he had physical evidence that could prove it. From the moment Thorpe had found Astor's diaries, he had threatened to use them to destroy her. When she took their custody dispute to the courts, he took what had been a private threat and brought it into the courtroom. What would follow would be a fight to the death, with both sides using Mary Astor's diaries to damage the other. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, read a book, show up for a friend? I think I would use my extra hour to sleep an hour later, or maybe spend more time at the gym. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it. I recently started seeing a new therapist with the explicit goal of trying to figure out what I want in the short term and the long term. I've been in fight or flight mode for so long that I've kind of lost track of any goals or ambition that I once had. A therapist can be there for you in times of crisis, even if you have, like me, rather diffuse needs. Either way, a therapist can help you understand the way that you feel and offer strategies for moving forward. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, so you don't have to sit in traffic to get to your appointment. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Y-M-R-T. Astor initially attacked Thorpe from two sides. Her complaint alleged that because he had demonstrated behavior that was willful, overbearing, domineering, gruff, and abusive, he was unfit to take care of their child. A second motion was filed accusing Thorpe of bigamy due to his relationship with Lillian Miles, which was painted as a common-law marriage. If Thorpe was legally married at the time of his marriage to Mary Astor, then their marriage would be invalid, and thus, so would their divorce and custody agreements. A final motion was filed asking to reverse the division of property made in the divorce, as Astor now alleged that Thorpe had essentially blackmailed her into paying him off. Thorpe's lawyer, Joseph Anderson, filed an answer to the charges, contending that Mary was an unfit parent, which could be proven by her own, quote, writings admitting her gross immoral conduct. The defense's filing then went on to quote from the diary, not florid writings about sex, but her worry that her child might someday read the diary and think less of her. The trial began in the midst of one of the hottest summers on record. The sessions mostly proceeded in night court because Mary was otherwise occupied at the time, shooting the film Doddsworth. Directed by William Wyler, Doddsworth starred Ruth Chatterton as a woman in midlife crisis who cheats on her husband, played by Walter Houston. She asks for a divorce so she can marry a shady European nobleman, and Walter Houston takes up with a widow, played by Astor. 
Astor hadn't always had a high opinion of her movie work. She referred to her previous run of films as a treadmill of trash. But in her opinion, and in the opinion of Hollywood, Dodsworth marked a turn in her career towards quality. As she headed into a very public trial that would require her to take the witness stand more than once, a nervous Mary took inspiration from her Dodsworth character, who was eternally calm and confident. Two qualities Mary didn't feel like she possessed at the time, but wanted to. She found another source of strength on the set of Dodsworth in her co-star, Ruth Chatterton. Chatterton and Astor barely knew each other, but Chatterton observed that Mary had no Hollywood friends by her side during this ordeal. She offered to join Mary in the courtroom, and Mary accepted. Ruth Chatterton would be in court almost every day of the trial, and she would often be accompanied by her then-boyfriend, director Fritz Lang. As the plaintiff, Astor's side was able to present their case against Franklin Thorpe before Thorpe's side was able to introduce the diary. So attorney Woolley set out to raise the specters of a number of women who could impugn Thorpe's integrity. One was Norma Taylor, a showgirl with a brief filmography who had become involved with Thorpe after the divorce. One night, While little Mary Lynn was at Thorpe's house, Norma allegedly showed up unannounced, drunk. As Thorpe explained, I tried to restrain her, but she broke away from me and ran upstairs. She tried to lock herself in, but I got through the door and grabbed her. We fell down in a tussle. He insisted that his daughter hadn't seen any of this, but a police officer testified that she had through her open bedroom door. The cop also testified that when he arrived, the blonde tailor was dressed in cream white lounging pajamas of a Chinese pattern, and she wore sandals. Her toenails were painted red. This is probably the source of Anger's inaccurate claim that Taylor was discovered wearing nothing but red nail polish and the fact that she was dressed in such intimate attire cast doubt on Thorpe's claim that Taylor had showed up at his house unannounced while he was taking care of his child and made it seem like they had gotten into a fight while sharing a bedroom down the hallway from his child. The policeman also added the detail that Taylor had attacked Thorpe with a carving fork that night, meaning that Thorpe had brought a violent person into the home he shared with his four-year-old. Then Mary Lynn's nurse, Nellie Richardson, testified that Taylor had spent the night at Thorpe's house in his bedroom many times. Anger claims Richardson testified that three other Busby Berkeley showgirls had slept with Thorpe within the span of a week. She did not. First of all, if Taylor was ever in a Busby Berkeley film, she was not credited, and neither were the other women who Richardson did testify having seen in Thorpe's bedroom. One was named Betty Grant, and I can't find a record of a Betty or Elizabeth Grant working in musical films at that time. The other was Madge Schofield, who definitely was not a showgirl of any kind, but who was the estranged wife of Thorpe's friend and sometime roommate, screenwriter Paul Schofield. And Richardson did not offer the witty deadpan comeback Anger credits her with. She simply confirmed that on the nights that Taylor slept in Thorpe's bedroom, she was confident they shared a bed because of the two beds in the room, only one bed was disturbed. Richardson knew this because it was part of her job to make the beds. Then there was Lillian Miles. 
Wooly found witnesses who had believed Thorpe and Miles to be married when they lived together in Tampa. And then, a woman named Ethel McLean came forward to testify that Thorpe had been married to her teenage daughter in 1917, but that the daughter had died two years later. According to McLean and two of her daughter's cousins, Thorpe had proposed to one of the cousins three days after his wife died primarily because the living woman resembled the dead one. This was apropos of nothing, really, except that it suggested that Thorpe had his own past, at least as checkered as Astor's. Anger is imprecise to say that Thorpe's team revealed the existence of the diary on the first day of the trial. They had implied its existence before the trial started, and then, before they had their turn to present their case in court, Thorpe's legal team began using the diary to present their case out of court. Newspapers began reporting that the film industry was afraid of what could be revealed in the trial about members of the movie colony who had enjoyed some manner of intimate involvement with Astor. Then, several days into the trial, Thorpe's attorney, Joseph Anderson, filed an affidavit, including more excerpts from the diaries, again omitting sexual details but this time including Astor's brainstorming of how to downplay the Kaufman affair in a future custody action. In this excerpt, Astor referred to Kaufman by his first name only. His identity might have been protected if Thorpe's attorney had not asked Richardson on cross-examination the question, Do you know George Kaufman? The nurse answered honestly, that she didn't, that Kaufman had never been to Mary Astor's house. But this was enough to reveal the identity of Astor's secret lover to the world. Astor then acknowledged that she and Thorpe had fought about Kaufman, but that Thorpe had implicitly condoned the affair by continuing to live with Astor for months after he knew it was happening and had, in fact, acknowledged his own ongoing affair in his apology to Mary. It was shocking that Astor had confessed in court to having an extramarital affair, but she had also successfully painted Thorpe as a hypocrite. Kaufman was subpoenaed, and he promptly skipped town. For a week, while the court was trying to reach him, he was blissfully sequestered on a train from Los Angeles to New York. Interviewed in a hotel room in Paris, Kaufman's wife took a puff of a cigarette and exhaled, Please don't ask me to discuss Mary Astor. She is a film actress. She kept a diary. Very stupid, that. But I prefer to remain outside this affair. I would like to preserve some dignity. Astor's side responded to these revelations by subpoenaing both diaries on the rationale that Thorpe would never produce them because they included so much unflattering and incriminating information about him. Thorpe's attorney brought a few selected pages into court, and then the judge gave them a week to produce the rest. A smiling Mary Astor told reporters... I want the judge to read the entire diary. I want him to see all the things that I wrote about my former husband. They are worse than anything they can say about me. This was printed, but it was overshadowed by reports from eyewitnesses in the courtroom that the pages of the diary had been scribbled in purple ink. These reports were false. Mary had written with a brown pen, but it increased the public perception that Mary's writings were so intimate as to be embarrassing. After Thorpe's attorneys brought pages of the diary into court, 
Newspapers began to publish what they claimed were excerpts from those pages. The New York Daily News, for instance, claimed Mary had written of Kaufman, "He is perfect. I don't know how he does it. He's perfect. He fits me perfectly." This makes for many exquisite moments. Twenty, count 'em, diary. Twenty. This was a fabrication. And though Thorpe issued a statement warning readers that many of the things published as purported excerpts from the diary are not phrases from the book, because no one reading newspapers had actually seen the diary, not only did the papers get away with it, but their manufactured diary quotes would blend with confirmed quotes from the diary published later to form a mythic diary in the public imagination. Most of what we can confirm was actually in the diary comes from excerpts printed by newspapers nationwide on August 11th. These excerpts were selected and provided to the papers by Thorpe's attorney, and they overlap with the versions printed decades later by Kenneth Anger, but only to a point. For instance, newspapers like the Green Bay Press Gazette printed. Sat around in the sun all day. Dinner at the dunes. A drink in the moonlight. Ah, desert night. They followed desert night with an ellipses, and did not include the addendum that appears in Hollywood Babylon, with George's body plunging into mine, naked under the stars. Other phrases anger includes that I've not been able to find in contemporary accounts. Are the bits about playing kneesies during a play, and Astor's claim to enjoying her fourth climax at dawn. It's possible excerpts were redacted for publication, but Anger's claim that the excerpts were heavily redacted with asterisks doesn't hold up to the scrutiny of actual newspapers. The half a dozen papers printed on August 11th, 1936, that I viewed, included no asterisks, and just a few instances where a straight line replaced the rest of a word after the first letter. And in almost every one of these cases, it's clear the intended word is bitch or hell. I'm not saying with absolute certainty that Mary Astor never wrote the words "with George's body plunging into mine, naked under the stars," but I'm unsure as to how Kenneth Anger would have known about it if she had. They were not read aloud in court or published in newspapers, and given that Anger was nine years old in 1936. It seems extremely unlikely he could have seen the diary personally during the period of the trial or before. And as we'll see, after the trial, the diary was removed from circulation. The fact that he gets some of the excerpts exact suggests he did look at newspaper archives to pull quotes from the diary, and then embroidered on top of the real excerpts. Thorpe's side continued to insist they were holding back the smoking gun that would be the death of Mary Astor's career. If the text of Miss Astor's diary is revealed in court, it will split the movie industry wide open," vowed Joseph Anderson. "The tragedy of it is that many of the persons named in the manuscript are innocent victims." Of the determined wiles of a beautiful woman who experimented with love as a scientist experiments with test tubes, the threat felt by the film industry had thus far been greatly exaggerated. But in early August, after Woolley subpoenaed the diaries and before Thorpe produced them in full, Hollywood's male moguls really did start to get worried. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work. It's taking forever to close the books. Getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, you should know these three numbers: 
36,025. 36,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. 1. Because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash remember. That's netsuite.com slash remember to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash remember. On the night she finished shooting Doddsworth, Astor was led into a meeting with the most powerful men in Hollywood, including Irving Thalberg, Louis B. Mayer, Jack Warner, and Sam Goldwyn, who was terminally ill at the time. Mary's lawyer, Woolley, was there too. He had not warned his client that the meeting was happening. Thalberg did the talking. He scolded Mary for bringing the suit against Thorpe, knowing that there was a diary that could cause a scandal. He told her that if the diary was revealed in full, it would have lasting repercussions for Mary's career and for the fate of the industry as a whole. None of the men in the room had seen the diary in full, but the moguls believed the worst of the rumors about its contents. All I could say, Mary later wrote, was that it just wasn't true, and if there were such pages, they had to be a forgery. Thalberg advised her to drop the suit and seek an out-of-court settlement. Astor looked to Woolley for counsel, and he simply shook his head, no. I'm sorry, gentlemen, Astor declared, but I will proceed with the case, as my lawyer has just advised me. Then she marched out to go drink champagne with Walter Houston. Mary's strategy with the press was to confirm fears that there were embarrassing details in the diaries about her ex-husband. There are events described in it which I am sure Dr. Thorpe wouldn't like bruited about publicly. Some of the things I discussed would get him into difficulty with the law regarding medical services he provided to Lillian Miles. This was a thinly veiled reference to abortion and many adult readers would have been able to see through the veil. Astor was able to delicately bluster when speaking with reporters, but privately, she considered August 11th, the day the newspapers published extensive, real excerpts of her diary, to be one of the most humiliating days of her life. When court convened the day the excerpts were published, Judge Goodwin Knight was livid. He didn't understand how two parents, ostensibly battling over the well-being of their child, could have drifted so far afield. He told the two lawyers that he felt it was about time to wrap up the case, declaring the diary extraneous to the custody matter. He ordered Anderson to ask for a continuance and for Wooley not to object. In essence, this ended the public trial and cut off all possibility the diary would be revealed in full in court. In the end, because the two squabbling ex-spouses couldn't agree what should be done with the diaries, Judge Knight appointed the Los Angeles County Treasurer's Office as a neutral custodian of Mary's writings. 
The two books were sealed in a vault in the treasurer's office, under orders to remain sealed until 1952, when Mary Lynn turned 21. By 1952, Astor and Thorpe were actually friends, and they agreed to remove the books from the treasurer's vault and incinerate them. As Anger correctly notes, an actress revealed in public to have been adulterous might have been shunned by Hollywood a few years earlier. But by 1936, attitudes were changing, and rather than paint Astor as a scarlet woman, the trial had effectively positioned her as a heroine of a melodrama. A woman who had made mistakes, but would do whatever it took to keep her baby. As Samuel Goldwyn, who ran the studio that produced Dodsworth, remarked, A woman fighting for her child? This is good! Dodsworth was not a blockbuster, but it was a major critical success, and it was nominated for seven Oscars. And it inspired Hollywood to start looking at Mary Astor as a serious actress. Five years later, at the age of 35, she managed to make two of her best films, in the same year. John Huston's The Maltese Falcon and The Great Lie. If you're listening to this podcast, you've probably seen, or at least heard of, The Maltese Falcon. But even I had never heard of The Great Lie until I started writing this episode. Which is too bad. Because it's insanely great. The movie begins with George Brent, in fake Clark Gable as city fuckboy mode, regretting his impulsive, drunken marriage to Astor's lady pianist. Then, he discovers that the marriage was technically invalid, and flies his plane to the plantation home of his long-suffering girlfriend, played by Betty Davis. Davis then travels to confront the glamorous Astor, in the guise of offering George Brent a job in one of the great meeting of two divas scenes of the era. Oh. Well, it's very kind of you, Maggie. But I like Pete where he is and as he is. Well, he's your husband. Yes, he is. Supposing you go... It was just a thought. Oh, and a very sweet one. If I didn't think you meant so well, I'd feel like slapping your face. On that one point, Sandra, we deeply understand each other. Don't miss your little train, Maggie. I won't. George Brent ends up marrying Betty Davis taking the government navigation job she hooked him up with, and disappearing somewhere over the South American jungle. Astor then discovers that she's pregnant with Brent's baby, and, assuming her husband is dead, Betty Davis offers to pay Astor to have the baby and let Betty raise it as if it were hers. What makes the film completely unique and wonderful is that in the middle of the movie, the two women travel together to a cabin in the middle of the desert so that Astor's character can play out her pregnancy and have the baby in secret. The two women form a barbed bond with one another that's unlike anything in movies of the era. What makes The Great Lie even more remarkable is that Davis, who is the bigger star, hand-picked Astor to play opposite her, and the two actresses worked together to develop their scenes together to beef up Astor's part and thus make the relationship depicted more substantial and unforgettable. Astor deservedly won an Oscar for this performance. People have said that I stole the picture from Betty Davis, but that is sheer nonsense. Astor later wrote, She handed it to me on a silver platter. 
After this career triumph, Astor, who would write openly about her alcoholism and religion-aided recovery in her autobiography, worked steadily for the rest of the 40s. Although she was quickly graduated from glamorous adult woman roles to mother parts, as in Meet Me in St. Louis. Her own daughter, Mary Lynn, said that in the notoriously lurid 1947 noir, Desert Fury, Astor was playing the character closest to herself, or at least the mother Mary Lynn recognized. This is a devastating thing to say about one's own mother, given that Astor's character in Desert Fury, a casino owner, is openly corrupt, totally controlling, and pretty much incapable of showing genuine affection for her teenage daughter, played by Lizbeth Scott, until the quasi-incestuous climax of the movie. For her part in her autobiography, Astor barely mentions Desert Fury, which she filmed while Mary Lynn was in high school. Astor goes to all kinds of private and dark places in her book, but it's perhaps best not to go there. Next week, we will explore one of the most notorious stories in Hollywood Babylon, one involving a patented Kenneth Anger blend of racism, sexism, and gross invented detail. Join us then, won't you? Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research and production assistant is Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Our social media assistant is Brendan Whalen. This episode was edited by Cameron Drews. And our logo was designed by Teddy Blanks. For more information about this episode and other episodes, please go to our website, you must remember this podcast.com. There you'll find show notes for every episode with information about our sources, music used, and much more. If you like the show, please tell anyone you can, any way that you can. You can follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod, and we're on Facebook and Instagram too. And my book, Seduction, Sex, Lies, and Stardom in Howard Hughes' Hollywood, is available now from Amazon or your local independent bookstore. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secret and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Join us then, won't you? Good night. You know that science solves crimes. Forensic science is exciting, challenging, and most of all, rewarding work. But there is a shortage of qualified individuals in this field. Hi, I'm Terry with Loyola University of Maryland's Forensic Science Department. Loyola is one of the only colleges in the country offering advanced degrees in forensic pattern analysis and biological forensics. Our courses, taught by forensic experts, feature hands-on training and small class sizes. They are based on real crime scene and forensic examiner training programs to ensure you are ready to make a difference. Our programs are open to students from a variety of academic backgrounds because we believe everyone can contribute to solving crimes. So what are you waiting for? Discover the excitement of forensic science at Loyola University, Maryland. Visit loyola.edu forward slash forensic for more information. That's loyola.edu forward slash forensic because you are ready to make a difference. Join one of Loyola University, Maryland's forensic science programs today. 
Celebrate and save at Ashley's anniversary sale. With Hot Buys, your choice of color starting at just $3.99. Ashley Sleep mattresses starting at $2.50. Plus, receive a free adjustable base with select mattress purchases. And shop top mattress brands like Stearns & Foster, Tempur-Pedic, Purple, and Beautyrest Black with 60-month special financing only at Ashley. Subject to credit approval. No minimum purchase required. Minimum monthly payment, down payment, tax, and delivery may be required. See store for details.